Hello and welcome to Square Hole, the podcast that explores neurodiversity, employment and the creative industries. I'm your host, Sazie Cliverture. I talk to Zipporah Johnston, a member and joint founder of the Nuke Collective. Nuke Collective is a Scottish-based group of neurodivergent artists that look to focus and advocate for neurodivergent people working in the arts. Zipporah talked about some of the frustrations she's had while working in the creative sector, and as a lot of our guests have said, the importance of community and support in your creative endeavours. My name is Zipporah Johnston. My pronouns are she, her, um, and I am a freelance artist and founder of Nook Collective, which is a, a collective advocating for better support of neurodivergent artists here in Scotland. Fabulous. Thank you. That was really nice and concise. I love it. Do you have any connection to neurodiversity? And that might include talking to us about uh, any previous work or experiences that have contributed to it. Yes, I'm autistic and dyspraxic, but um, I was actually only diagnosed in my 30s. And it's not that they didn't realise that there was something weird about me. Um, (laughs) But I don't think that like my school or my family or, or even doctors had like a conceptual category of autism when it came to girls okay yes so I, I got plenty of other diagnoses um you know like depression generalized anxiety disorder um just being a pain in the neck um and my life was like this sort of cycle of like breakdowns and burnout and just years spent feeling like a, an alien dropped off on earth without a guidebook um so getting the autism diagnosis in particular was was kind of like getting the the key to my brain and realizing oh I'm, I'm not a defective neurotypical I'm a perfectly fine <laughs> neurodivergent person so that diagnosis journey led me to SWAN which is the Scottish Women's Autism Network and that connects uh, socially but also advocates politically for autistic women in Scotland and it actually became quite a big inspiration for Nuke Collective and the, the Neurodivergent Artist Network that we're launching because I ended up becoming a facilitator of the Edinburgh group by a series of unexpected events. Um, we used to have meetups in cafes around in cities around Scotland. So um, we had one in Aberdeen and one of the borders and one in Glasgow and, and I was running the Edinburgh one. Um, now we're on Zoom in the, the COVID age. Yes, um, as we all are. Yeah, <laughs> we're really lucky that we were able to do it. So you mentioned there that you had a late diagnosis and because professionals around you didn't have a conceptual understanding of what autism looks like in women. And I just wondered, would you be willing to talk about that a little bit more? For me, it's kind of weird because I have a cousin, my mother's brother's son, who is almost exactly the same age as me. We're like a year apart. And he was diagnosed as a child because he absolutely presented classically as you imagine like a a boy with autism you know that it's kind of uh when people think about autism they think mostly about a white boy don't they and you know he was wild at school and questioning authority and quite like a man demand avoidant and things in a way that like I was socialized not to be mm-hmm. <laughs> as, as a, a girl like just the expectations for me were, were really different and I was quiet and studious. I, I think there is as well something about, does the child disrupt the class? Yes. Okay, diagnostic pathway. No, um, you know, the, the child might be suffering, but as long as they're not causing problems, um, 
then there was a feeling like, oh, well, you know, just everything, everything's fine. You know, it's not causing us any issues. Um, and I think part of uh, running Swan is I just hear so many experiences of women of like all ages, all backgrounds. And you know, we have people who are just 16 who, you know, are coming out of high school and then we have people who are in their 60s who are now being like oh you know I think actually this would explain the pattern of my life um, mm. and, and it, it's really striking the commonality uh, of the experiences of of this late diagnosed um, these, these late diagnosed women like you, you just realize how many of issues are, are systemic um, you know meeting after meeting is women coming with these just appalling experiences at work um, and being bullied and ostracized and um, refused reasonable adjustments and, and like and, and this cycle of burnout is like a really common one as well and getting that diagnosis is, is like such a transformative experience because you're allowed to think about yourself differently um, you know, people come with like really terrible self-image that they're just rubbish at everything and it's like no you're not but like this world was not designed for us um, so you are working like three times as hard to give the impression of, of, of uh, being a neurotypical. And I think it's quite isolating as well when you don't have a diagnosis. Um, I know that a lot of people are um, maybe in the right wing press are kind of like, oh, there's too many people being diagnosed these days. And mm. what's the point of diagnosing you know, 30 year old women? And it's like because it, it allows you firstly this manual to yourself, but also a peer group. You know, like women finding each other in these groups uh, and be like, oh, my God, that's me as well. And that's my experience. And be able to share that. It's like so important. It's also not as though a neurodivergent diagnosis stops at school at 16 or 18. And then, you know, you go out into the adult world and, and, and it doesn't have an effect on, on an adult life. You know, of course, there's, there's, <laughs> of course, there's a reason to diagnose. So I, I, I'm, I'm so grateful to hear that places like Swan and New York Collective exist. Um, so I've gone off piste a bit, so I'm gonna go back to talk about New Collective. So can you tell me how it started, what the mission is, and why it's so important for the collective to exist? Very small questions there. Um, so I mean, how it started is that I am an artist and I kind of really was experiencing how crap the system is for neurodivergent artists. Um, I mean, I would say actually neurodivergent employees generally across most industries, but there is something about the arts um, that that feeling of like this shouldn't be this hard. Because mm-hmm. um, on the one hand, like the creative industry should be a great place to be neurodivergent. Like loads of, of uh, neurodivergent people are really artistic. You're not tied down to an office. Um, you know, you can really pursue the thing that is your passion and your special interest. Um, and the impression is that the creative industries are full of people who think differently, act differently, work differently, who aren't doing things like I do, sitting in an office nine to five crunching numbers. You would think it would be a really inclusive and embracing place to be. Right, exactly. And it's like, so not. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that sort of like the resentment at the disconnect, I think. Um, it's about the way it's like organized and gate kept and funded I think mm. that make it really difficult for neurodivergent folks and and it's quite often in ways that are just completely unnecessary um, 
So like the system of shows and opportunities that being give, given out based on networking, mm. um, which is networking is so important in the arts um, and it just shuts people out with social disabilities. But also, I mean, other disabilities that like result in fatigue, things like that, you know, where you can't be constantly uh, pressing the flesh at wine and cheese parties. Um, and, uh, and it doesn't even lead to the best artists being promoted, like just the best communicators. Um, the application process is really unfriendly to people with um, either reading or processing differences. Mm. Um, like one of the people um, in Newt Collector was saying about how like um, they did an application recently that told them that it should take about 10 hours and it took them 40. And, and when you like scale that up to you know, every application you do, it, I mean, it, that's a huge amount of unpaid labor, right? Um, I'm shocked at 10 hours. Yeah. I mean, oh, to goodness. think that 10 hours is like a normal, especially for, I think, for the arts, it's not like a nine to five where like you maybe do an application once every couple of years. Mm. The way that the arts are organized is that you are in this constant cycle of applications, always like looking for the next tiny pot of money. Um, and so if you are having to do like an application a month, you can imagine like the, the huge chunk of, of your time that is taken out and time, that's time that you could spend exactly earning money or seeking you know or or resting from the fact that you're constantly as you say on this hamster wheel trying to find the next commission right and there's there is no rest time built in to no. this the system you're just always supposed to be on the on the treadmill and again for a lot of neurodivergent people like that rest time is absolutely vital like it's part of the work because if you don't do it you you burn out Mm. um you know if you're experiencing the world more intensely that that just means that you're going to need more hours of rest um regardless of what of what you're doing and, and also you know all the problems that we we all know about in the arts like the, the precarity of it the clannishness the absurd amount of unpaid labor <laughs> they're just amplified for neurodivergent people you know because quite often people were like oh well ev- you know, the arts is hard for everyone and I'm like yeah it is and it shouldn't be it's just ramped up for neurodivergent people. It's like the difference between just about keeping your head above water and drowning. Um, and it keeps all these really talented people out who can't bend themselves into the shape um, that the art world is designed for. Um, a lot of neurodivergent artists as well are quite isolated. Um, you know, and so you don't have that peer group or like support structures that would help like, advocate for you. Because so much of that relies on on networking and and things that neurodivergent people might find a little bit more difficult than a neurotypical person or a neurotypical person who's got the gift of the gab. Um, so that that really answers the question why it's so important for it to exist. But can you tell me a bit about the mission? So what what is it that you are? What's your goal? What do you want in a perfect world? Um. I mean, the things that we want are basically what we've set out in the, the manifesto, which is that the system is built for like a certain shape of person. It's got to change to be more flexible. Things need to be done with us in mind as well. So, you know, opportunities, applications and so on. Um, when you are designing these things, it can't just can be retconned in. You have to begin with the um, thought that, okay, I'm going to do this in a way that's accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, I think more funding definitely needs to happen. And I mean, one of the things we ask for in the um, manifesto is universal basic income. I know it's a, a big ask and it's not necessarily something that arts organizations can tackle, but having that anxiety 
and the sense of like being on the treadmill is what kind of prevents a lot of neurodivergent artists actually making it in the arts like making that leap from amateur to professional mm. um and especially benefits issues like we spoke to so many we weren't even expecting this to, to like really come up but when we were doing research for the manifesto people really wanted to tell us about benefits um and the way that you get trapped you know so if you are on benefits you can't uh, sorry disability benefits you can't earn anything um because there are some situations in which you're allowed to earn like 20 pounds a week or whatever but for a lot of people with invisible disabilities where whether or not you get awarded those disabilities is really precarious and essentially depends on the the whim of the nurse that assesses you from the DWP that day um, people are terrified even to do that because it can be used as a as a reason to take your benefits away yeah um, and it is a kind of systemic discrimination against disabled people that you cannot make that move from amateur to professional. Like, you know, you can't necessarily support yourself because you can't work full time or whatever. But on the other hand, so then you, you, so you go into benefits and then on the other hand, you're then stuck on benefits and it's really hard to make that transition out. Um, and it's so interesting because so many of the artists that you, you know, the artists whose names that we know now, We'll talk about their time in art school on benefits or their, or their years spent after art school on benefits creating and and you know having that time and space to do that kind of work whereas you know that whole route has closed now for for so many people like it, it's some ways that this is a golden moment because we're being forced to remake the industry to some extent after covid and i think we won't go back to that time um, where, you know, as long as we have the Tories in government, certainly we won't go back to that time where people were given the support and space mm. to develop the things. But um, as the, the industry is being remade, there are things that could be built in to mitigate some of the effects of that. Like, I just, I don't want to see us going back to the status quo because it, it just wasn't working for a lot of I people. I really hope that you're right. I really, really do. Because, you know, that was, I, for me, that was one of the things at the beginning of COVID when I could see people coming together, getting to know their neighbours, volunteering, doing And I was thinking, yes, this is it. This is how we rebuild. You've sort of moved us on perfectly to my next question, um, which is about the guide that you've produced for employers to support working with uh, neurodiverse artists. How did you come up with the content of this guide? Yeah, so the original plan actually for the project was just to create the manifesto. Mm -hmm. um, so the research that we were doing was about informing the manifesto, because like as well as our, our own experiences, um, you know, th there's only four of us. Um, we wanted to get like some different perspectives. Um, so we, we did quite a lot of research. We had two online surveys, a long form one with kind of more detail and then an, e an easy read one. And then we also had a, a couple of discussion events for artists just to talk about the issues and priorities and like what they felt were like the main things either holding them back or that would make like a, a material difference to their working conditions mm -hmm. um and it, it brought up so much stuff like just so much really important things that we we felt okay these really impact on people's working lives and they are the difference between it being impossible or impossible for artists to work within the arts and mm -hmm. to develop their practice or manage financially and we wanted to make sure that like this wasn't lost, but we also felt it was important to keep the manifesto tight because I think that's part of what gives it impact. We wanted it to be something that people would uh, pick up and read and think about 
So quite early on, to be honest, we, we realized we actually needed two documents. We needed the, the manifesto, which would be really tight, really focused, and then a practical document for organizations that would go into a lot more detail. And I, I think part of it is that like there, there is goodwill out there, like, you know, it, it, and, and if you're an organization, like interested in working with neurodivergent artists, which should be all organizations. Correct. <laughs> um, and like, okay, you know, how do I support them? Um, then you need more than like the aspirations or demands of the manifesto. You, you need like detail. You, you're kind of asking, okay, so what, how do I make a meeting uh, more friendly for neurodivergent people? Or, you know, how, how do I organize my events um, so that they're accessible for neurodivergent people? And yeah, no, I, think, I think there is curiosity and good intentions out there. It's mm-hmm. just that like people don't necessarily know what they can do. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's also a lot of obstructive uh, folk out there, but like, but there, there's there's like goodwill too, and I think you need to assume goodwill because I think that's how you get people on board. You're right. I think that's that that sort of positive progressive mindset rather than sort of beating out people over the head is probably the way to move forward. Because uh, I, you know, even before we started working on this project, I always thought, oh yeah, yeah, and no, I, you know, I'm an inclusive guy. Like, um, when I, you know, I'm not, I'm not shutting anybody out. And, you know, I have had to consider even just the small scale little meetings that I have at my work, maybe I could do more. Maybe I should be thinking more about inclusion in my practice and in my processes. So yeah, I think, I think that's the, the right, not that my opinion is that important? But I think that, that I would say that's the right way to go. Thank you for doing my idea. Um, yeah, but it, it, it isn't, it isn't, your opinion is important. Like everybody's opinion is important. Like you've got to bring people you. with you. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, everybody, all of us, like including us, like, you know, Nook is not the, um, there, I think there is no universal access um, in many ways, like because there's so many competing and like intersecting needs, but like, there is something about being willing to be on the journey and like being willing to learn and being willing to like meet people where they are that is just really important I think that's a really beautiful way of putting it um have you had any particular frustrations while looking for work and how were you able to resolve them if you have had them yeah I think well the the biggest frustration probably for, for me looking for work and also to be honest quite a lot of the artists who responded to our surveys and you know, people I've, I've spoken to informally is this issue of like how much unpaid labor it mm. involves um it, it's kind of the gig economy or, or the short-term contract economy where you're just living from contract to contract or commission to commission um you're always filling out the next application form mm. and you know if, if you've spent a week on that you're, you haven't spent a week on on your practice yeah I think the reality is that it, it's just going to cost a lot of neurodivergent artists um a lot more emotional energy and time. Um, I do take an absurd amount of time on my applications. And then there's also the issue of like, I don't even know if I'm doing them right because they're written from quite a neurotypical perspective. So sometimes I, I've realized that actually I've not understood the question because they're, they're, they think they're uh, being helpful by writing a really open-ended question. But that for me as an autistic person is actually really difficult to interpret. Mm. So because there's there's like all this stuff that you're just supposed to kind of read between the lines that I'm like, no, 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 I, I actually would do better if you asked me very 
precise targeted question <laughs> or just said, you know, give us a plan of exactly what you want to do, you know. Um, and so I think that's, again, one of those uh, areas where like there's goodwill. People think they're being helpful. They're like, oh, we'll just give them space to, to you know, t- talk about whatever they want to talk about. But actually, for me, that's like, oh, my God, <laughs> what, what is this asking me? Um, and uh, I was really in, I was really incredibly lucky, actually, with my application to create inclusion, that it was successful um, because, I mean, applications are really my bet more. Um, and I, I put it down to getting feedback um, because it's the only application that's ever given me feedback. <laughs> and it wasn't extensive. It was like a line. And it, it, but it made a huge difference because it, it basically said, you haven't understood the question. <laughs> You've missed this invisible thing we were asking you. And I was like, oh, yeah. right, okay. <laughs> so once I had that key to what they were, they were actually asking in that question, I reapplied the next year with that knowledge and I got it. I'm so pleased, congratulations. So you got feedback because you'd been unsuccessful, but you said that's the only one that's ever, ever occurred. So that's one of the, I guess that's one of the adaptations that, is probably in your guide to say, give feedback to people who are replying and tell them why they didn't get the role. Right, it is definitely in, in our section on applications, one of the things we say is give feedback. Um, and I understand that like there are some opportunities or organizations where like they'll get like a thousand applicants and there'll be one person trying to review all of those. And I do have sympathy with that, but even if you have some kind of like, even in the way that like there are employers who have the double tick scheme where you are guaranteed an interview, if you're disabled that maybe they can have guaranteed feedback and it was only a line like it was it was very basic feedback it wasn't like they had written me an essay but it made such a huge difference to me because it was about like not just this is a you're never going to to um get this fund if you continue to just not understand the question um and and I would like as well though for applications themselves to be more made more accessible. And and I, mm. I think that's the issue of like, you know, how do you resolve this frustration? Well, I don't think that you can until the application system changes. Um like I actually made a decision this year not to apply for any other opportunities and just concentrate on Loop Collective, um, which is incredibly scary. Because um, it means I don't really have anything lined up for when the funding ends. And mm. I, and I, I do feel this anxiety that I, I should be getting my work out there and um I guess the, the fear of, of stepping off the treadmill right that, yeah. um, that you're talking about and but I also knew that I, I just I couldn't manage both um I have an energy limited condition as well as my neurodivergence mm-hmm. um so I have to budget my energy really carefully um and it, it was really a choice between my personal practice and the work of Nuke Collective and, and I chose Nuke because I, I just think it's really important um, I'll let you know how that turned out. <laughs> yeah, please do. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about what you were saying about feedback. And, you know, it needn't be uh, an individual essay or paragraph to each applicant. It could be, these are themes that we're finding. And these are the themes that, you know, that across the 1,000 people who applied and the 999 who didn't get the role, we're finding that these are the things that keep cropping up. So here's some advice on these these themes and if there's anything here that doesn't apply to you necessarily give us a ring and maybe we'll have a chat you know it could be it could be something broad that would help a lot of people I mean are there any other adaptations that you've sort of been able to bring to employers or businesses to sort of make things easier to make their 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 workplaces more neuro-inclusive well I mean the 
certainly the the guide is uh, yeah it's full of <laughs> different ones um but i think for applications there is some really good practice going on at the moment um like with gerwood arts um who actually give an access uh, a budget for people who oh, need wow. it so i think you i think it's about 200 or 300 pounds um and if you need support to write that application then they will give you that budget to hire someone to um like maybe go through it with you or scribe it for you that's amazing yeah no i i the, the gerard arts one i was very impressed by and in england they have this grant called develop your creative practice and i am seeing like a lot of organizations being like we have got three slots for pro bono help filling out your uh, application um, so that is that's also something that like organizations can offer like if, it, if they're not like ace themselves but like they're you know they're supporting people in the the wider arts uh, economy I guess um, having things available in accessible formats is another really basic one that mm-hmm. is amazingly not not done <laughs> um, there was a, it's not an application but there was a, a recent report from the British Council on um, making the arts accessible that wasn't in any accessible format great yeah and it was like oh okay now this is the problem so you know having the information in easy read or um, on audio you know for people who are varying levels of dyslexia who would prefer just to hear it yeah that's um and that's really important and also like having someone to ask questions yeah we had some really awful stories of people who had called up a funding body to like ask for clarification about applications and been told like never contact us again like um you know you're supposed to email us and like this person was dyslexic and you know there's there's different degrees of dyslexia but they, they really struggled with written communication so they they preferred to do everything by, by phone which is completely yeah. reasonable yes you know, of course. If you have a, don't, don't put a phone number for your funding body if you're not going to answer the phone i'm actually genuinely i don't know if you heard me gasp there but i'm genuinely shocked and quite upset at the at the thought that someone who's just asking for clarification from a from a a, a body will would be told never to contact us again how dreadful yeah, I was, it was really awful like we, we were all like oh my god <laughs> in this in this discussion event um and you know there are some people for whom like being just being able to talk things through verbally is really important to their yeah. their thinking process like i as an autistic person will do anything to avoid having to make a phone call <laughs> so, you know, for, for me email absolutely is the way to go but um that everyone is different and i think part of committing to accessibility is accepting that there isn't like an accessible format <laughs> there, no you know being accessible is having that the, the multiplicity of formats um and ways of contacting you um and and so it's nice to see that like more organizations and more um, funding bodies and and so on are starting to appoint like a, a named contact person that you can ask yeah um, I've seen also more often people having um, introduction introductory events to it you know so they'll do a Q&A for people who are interested in the opportunity before they have to start like writing the application and I think that can be really helpful yeah, I went to one of those myself, which was about um, a, a creative role, actually. I Again, I'm not a creative person, but this was a, a creative role. Um, it was a, a, a time set, a time limited job, and it's quite a prestigious role in a prestigious place. And they did. They had a 45 minute Zoom session where, you know, the hiring manager talked about the role, the two people who 
who currently held those positions talked about their experiences. You could ask questions. They told you exactly what you needed to provide, what kind of portfolio of work, um, what they were expecting from the from somebody who was applying for that position. And it was the most useful thing. I mean, it made me think, yeah, this isn't for me. I haven't I haven't got the chops. But it was it was the most useful thing rather than, you know, even just to sort of discourage you and say, this isn't for you. But rather than spending a weekend, a week, two weeks, three weeks, right, you know, writing this application, padding out, you know, doing the, you know, it just, it really did cement what was necessary. And, and I hadn't even, it hadn't even crossed my mind that this is the kind of thing that a neurodivergent person would need i just thought oh isn't this really great <laughs> and it, it just didn't cross my mind but you are you're I, now i can see it and it makes so much sense it's interesting because these sort of events in certain industries are like a very established thing um, yeah like usually for graduates um so like all those city law firms and that kind of thing they, yes. they have long held these like inf information days and and I, I guess there is something about like recognizing that you know a lot of applications are, are slightly speculative mm. and we just can't afford to do that so we do have to make choices about which ones we're going to concentrate our energy in and even knowing that okay this opportunity is not going to be for me is really important yeah so maybe it is going to be for you and then you have the opportunity to ask okay so when you say this like what does that actually mean and and then you can write your application accordingly absolutely um What's the biggest hurdle that you've had to overcome with creative work? Um, I guess for me, it's it's fatigue. Um, you know, so I have Emmy, and that obviously has a huge uh, burden of fatigue. But also, when we were talking to people um, in kind of uh, the research phase, um, fatigue is like a really big part of a lot of neurodivergent conditions. Yeah, epilepsy is one. Completely, like you know, and, and managing that fatigue and making sure that you don't get uh, sick because you've fatigued yourself too much. And um, people with Tourette's, you know, that's the similar issue. People with men various mental health uh, diagnoses, that's a huge issue. Um, and then if you have processing issues as well, so like dyspraxia, dyslexia, um, autism, uh, ADHD, like the life can be more fatiguing generally yeah um, you know, for, for me going into a supermarket is like a completely exhausting experience because I can't deal with that much information all at once mm. so it, it, it feels absolutely like a kind of assault on my senses yeah. um, and my brain just kind of overloads and so if you go through life just kind of constantly being bombarded with that kind of information it is really exhausting um and I think the other thing probably for me is anxiety mm. um, because I get really overwhelmed with anxiety and to the point that sometimes I think it's better that like people don't meet me <laughs> because oh. you know at these at these wine and cheese things because I make such a bad impression um, like sometimes I, I honestly just can't get the words out and I'm, I'm that anxious and people are like what is wrong with her <laughs> Um, I'm like just gaping like a fish and, and like trying not to throw up on their shoes. Um, but we're sitting here on Zoom. You're an absolute delight and you have so much to say and are so interesting that 
Oh, but it's... people take it really personally, um, you know, not making eye contact and, no. and not wanting to have your camera on. Like it, I had work situations in the past where they really thought of themselves as inclusive, um, but they just couldn't deal. Like it, when it came down to it, they just couldn't deal with the fact that like I couldn't perform socially. And I was kind of like, I was essentially constructively dismissed, you know, I was bullied out and they'd be like, you know, you're, you're just horrible to be around. Um, and, um, because, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't doing all the right facial expressions and, and uh, looking people in the eye and stuff. Well, that's, that's so awful to hear because it, it doesn't take much, just a bit of thought and a bit of consideration and a few conversations with the individual and, and, you know, you can, as you said earlier, you can meet someone where they are. Like it's not, ugh. oh, it's so frustrating. I'm so, I mean, it, it didn't happen to me and it's, it, it's, oh. It's like an attitude shift. It's, it's, you know, this person doesn't make eye contact um, and, and you have like a decision tree then that you can branch out in one or two directions either. That's fine. It's not, it's not personal. That's just the way they roll. Yeah. Or the other one is, um, this person is rude and offensive, and I hate working with them. And, and you know, you have the choice at that, that point to which uh, branch of the tree you want to to go down. Um, and it's it's like encouraging people to choose the right branch, I think, uh, and being like, no, it you know, it's it's okay. It's not personal. Um, it's not about you really, <laughs> um, and you can just like be relaxed about it um, because it, I think as well people don't realize how hard you're trying yeah as, as an autistic person like um the fact that I'm actually there in the office with them is is for me like a massive hurdle <laughs> so for you then to like fixate about the fact that I'm not able to then make the eye contact is like ignoring this it's like a, an iceberg you know this this huge iceberg beneath the surface of all the work that I'm doing to to just kind of be here um but you're like oh no I can see this tiny uh, a bit of a uh, lack of eye contact on the surface and that must mean that like there's nothing there and and it's and you know you mentioned earlier sort of how we're socialized to behave to be quiet and compliant and and not to disrupt things and so I guess that leads to even more masking and 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 then that adds to that level of fatigue and tiredness because you're not only are you doing your job and listening and trying to pay attention and, and participating in the meeting and all the things that you, you're also, you know, masking behaviors that might betray you. And I'm saying that in air quotes as uh, to be as being different from from the typical right you're kind of constantly monitoring yourself and others mm. in this kind of conscious feedback loop of you know am I making the right facial expression now you know am I holding my hands right you know am I am I like making an approximation of eye contact yeah you know? uh, and uh, you know what what does that expression on their face mean are they angry are they like and and that that amount of cognitive uh, activity it, it, it takes its toll you know constantly uh, having that background track on while you're actually trying to do the job of course it really must like yeah oh gosh um also those things like um contact is really important in mm. the arts like it, partly in developing your practice like you know things like residencies and and uh, courses and things that they, they're really important to you as, as a, an artist building your your work um as well as the kind of uh networking chummy stuff but, mm. but they are really intense 
yeah um, so if you're on a week-long residency like I just can't be with people for that long like you know I cannot do eight hours a day with with people I, I have to go and rest um you know whether that's because of my social anxiety and things or it, my uh, my fatigue um they are such like a, a big part of how people build networks and, mm. and I don't have um I don't have an art school education so like I don't have that as kind of beginning network in a way that a lot of people do so for me people were like oh you know you ought to get yourself networked in you ought to go to residencies you know you, know, <laughs> you should go to these like artist social meets and things and I was just like you know these are just not accessible for me and especially the self-funded ones you know I cannot be paying 500 pounds for a residency that I'm gonna get like an hour a day max out of <laughs> and, and that's a crazy amount to spend anyway if you are somebody who's jobbing and what and going from one job to and there's and nothing is is um there's no concrete every month your salary is going to hit your account on this day it's a crazy amount to spend for something that might not actually lead to anything anyway yeah Ugh. it's something you would save up for you know yeah and then and then you'd be like essentially just throwing that money away on on like four hours where people probably just thought you were weird anyway <laughs> like, oh, man so. oh we have like we have 10 minutes left unfortunately um do you have any major do's and don'ts for any creative employers listening who are looking to support neurodivergent employees? Let's say three do's and don'ts if you can if you can do that. I would say like maybe the the number one thing is like attitude. I think that a lot of the other stuff flows from that. Like you as a manager have a lot of power to set the tone and the way that procedures and policies in your organization um are, are written and whether they're accessible and also in in the workplace itself like you have the tone yet you have the power to set the tone about how neurodivergent employees are treated mm-hmm. um whether you're going to make a massive fuss about the fact that someone doesn't want to come to the pub <laughs> or whether you're just going to be like do you know what like everybody's different everyone's an individual and it's absolutely fine um i would say um things like treating people as an individual is really important and actually asking them what they need mm. um so Access riders are a really good thing to have. I think you have to be careful about when you ask them because I think the other thing to remember is that like when you're asking about someone's disability, you're asking actually a lot of very personal questions. So I've had really awful stories of, of people being like, they wanted my access statement before I'd even like applied <laughs> to, to the job. And then they were kind of using it as like a way to screen people out. That wow. is not how you use access statements. <laughs> yeah. Um, you should offer people the opportunity to provide their access statement if that would help them mm. but it, it it should not be um a requirement a prerequisite. And, and, yeah and it should absolutely not be a screening tool thank you very much so that's two major do's do you have another do yeah do your research yes um you know there's a lot of information out there um be, like be aware that like not every condition is going to involve the same kind of like reasonable adjustments so there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution for someone with epilepsy that is then going to suit somebody with bipolar or uh, autism. No. Um, but there are a lot of resources out there. And I think that it can be quite valuable to not put all the... I mean, you, you absolutely need to speak to individuals and because even with people with the same condition, their needs are going to be different. But I, I do think that laying the foundation with actually researching for yourself then takes some of the pressure off the neurodivergent artist because it's exhausting to constantly be advocating for yourself um, and to kind of constantly be the one who's having to take all the responsibility for uh, for your access Um, those are my three 
fabulous. The last question, and we have to be really quick now. Where can our listeners find you? Where can we find out more about Nuke Collective? Um, the best place is probably to check out our website. So that's nukecollective.co.uk and it's spelt N-E-U-K um, as opposed to N-W-O-K. That's uh, where we put all of our resources. Um, we also have an Instagram. We're at Nuke Collective on, on Instagram. Um, and yeah, we're, we've just launched uh, an artist directory on our website as well. So if you are an artist uh, who lives or works in Scotland with any significant connection to Scotland um, and you're neurodivergent, you can sign up and have a page. Um, so that's another uh, nice resource uh, if you want to check us out. Um, if you want to commission a, a Scottish neurodivergent artist, you've now got a handy list. Um, and uh we're going to also be kind of promoting the manifesto and expanding the the artist network. Um, so yeah, just follow us on Instagram for that. It's, it's probably the, the easiest. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Square Hole. On behalf of its creators, Lorna Allen and Janook Sarkar, we hope this episode has allowed you to consider some new pathways into your understanding of neurodiversity. We would really like to give a massive thank you to all of our interviewees for giving us their time and knowledge and talking to us about their experiences. We'd also like to extend our huge thanks to our funders at the RSA and to Zoe Law, who helped fund the production of the podcast. A huge thank you to Ade Bambala and to Carrie Morrison for their editing. A big thank you to Angus Wilson from Eames Music for arranging our music theme. Finally... Thank you to you, all of our listeners, for joining us. We hope this helps you in some way on your journey. It has certainly helped us.